This is the Elevators Podcast. We discuss all things elevating your life, work, and relationships as you are building your business and yourself. Here is your host, yours truly, Dylan Buck. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Elevators Podcast. I'm excited to dive in today. I hope everybody listening purchases a copy of Jeff's new book, Streetwise to Saleswise. Um, The link will be posted in the show notes. Uh, I've got a copy of it, uh, a PDF in my email that I'm excited to dive into. And uh, the basic premise is just never again being at a loss for handling your buyer's objections. So whether that's a, a generic, your price is too high, or I need to think it over, I need to talk to my spouse, Whatever specific concerns or issues that seem to come up time and time again, for far too long, these have seemed to be the bane of sales professionals' existence. And it just, it doesn't need to be that way, according to Jeff. So both Jeff and Bob are long-term sales professionals. They're co-authors of this new book, Streetwise to Saleswise, and just becoming objection-proof and beating the sales blues. So this will help you turn your doubting prospects into ecstatically happy new customers and clients. So excited to dive in and even more excited for you to get your hands on a copy of this book to dive deeper. Here we go. Cool. Well, welcome back, everybody, to the Elevators Podcast. I am sitting down with Jeff C. West, and I was uh, introduced to Jeff by uh, Bob Berg. He reached out to me via email just saying, hey, I've got someone who I think would be a great guest for your podcast, and uh, I'm super excited uh, to dive in today, Jeff, and and dive into the book, the most recent book that you've written. Uh, Would you mind just kind of kicking us off by walking through a little bit of your background and how you've gotten to this point right here? Sure. Thank you so much, Dylan, for having me on. I I am honored to be on your show with you. Uh, I actually started in sales right out of college. Uh, my, my degrees are to teach. I, the original plan, I was going to be a band director. I have, I have degrees, bachelor's and master's in music. And uh, I ended up going to work for a living with a company uh, because there was no teaching jobs in the area that I needed to finish, uh, let my wife finish her degree. So I got a job in sales and immediately I was making more money than I would make teaching. And uh, we, we got, we had our first child and my child, my daughter and my wife picked up this nasty habit. They like to eat and live inside. And so <laughs> I, I had to keep working in sales to be able to afford the life. But uh, I went through a couple of industries. I was in the musical instrument sales business, then uh, the industrial uniform sales business. And then uh, for a little over 21 years, I was actually in the voluntary employee benefit space, the supplemental insurance, similar to what you guys do. And uh, I absolutely loved it. Uh, My career, uh, it, it started off with a sputter a little bit, but then it took off like crazy after I met a couple of people we'll talk about maybe a little bit later in the interview, but uh, one of them I'll say my co-author Bob Berg on Streetwise, he's just amazing. But and uh, retired from that about ten years ago, and have been writing and speaking and and trying to 
uh, trying to make change happen out in the world with my words, I guess is the best way to say it with my Southern accent. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. No, and I've got so much respect for Bob and it's been, you know, a blessing to talk to you so far uh, today. And uh, I guess I'm curious what, what has prompted or what did prompt you to uh, write this new book with Bob, you know, streetwise to saleswise? That's such a great question. Uh, I had written two books before. One uh, was a, a, a sales parable. Also, I tend I tend to function in the business and sales parable realm. That's my favorite genre to read and to write and teach with. Uh, but the first one was uh, a parable that came out. It was in the insurance industry. It did pretty well called The Unexpected Tour Guide. And then mm-hmm. uh, I did one with Lisa Wilbur, who is, uh, uh, I refer to her as a direct sales legend, Lisa Wilbur. So <laughs> she's literally Avon's fifth highest producing person in history. And she and I did a parable. Uh, it came out at the end of 2022 called Said the Lady with the Blue Hair. But Lisa and I actually met through Bob. And uh, Bob has a group called the Go-Giver Success Alliance. And it's a mentorship community online and uh, Lisa was on there and that's how I met her. We wrote the parable together. That went well. And Bob and I had actually been friends at that time for 20 plus years. We we became friends probably in about 2003. So 21 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I guess it was fourth quarter of last year. Bob had sent me an email. Uh, we're prone to send things back and forth to get the other person's thoughts and opinions about, hey, what do you think about how I've ordered this? And yeah. so we we do that a lot. And he had sent me something. And in a little comment at the very end, he said, by the way, save this because when we do our parable, this could be some good material. And so I, I, I replied to his email and signed it. Then I put a little PS. If you're serious, oh, yeah. <laughs> We're going to do this. And so we actually began talking about it. And uh, fortunately, uh, as you know, uh, Bob and then John David Mann, co- they're co-authors on the entire Go-Giver series. John yeah. David Mann is also my friend and a mentor. I actually take, he's my writing coach even. And so wow. uh, he was excited about the fact that Bob and I were doing it, but because, uh, John's moving into full novels and many other things. But we began the, the process uh uh, I guess uh, 14, 15 months ago, something like that. And uh, the storyline just came and we worked, we took basically Bob's, uh, Bob has had material on becoming objection proof for years. It's, it's some great how to, it's kind of, it reminds me a little bit of the process that happened that generated the go-giver. Bob had a how-to book called Endless Referrals and he wanted to turn it into a parable and he and John David Mann turned it into Literally, it's got to be one of the best-selling parables in all time. It's sold over a million copies, yeah. and uh, so that that tended to be that uh, what uh, they did. And so, as we did this one, streetwise to saleswise, uh, we took Bob's objection-proof material and we turned it into a beautiful story. It was uh, we put, threw some of my music background in there. We threw a lot of Bob's training. We threw a lot of my sales training in leadership training from both of us. It, it was a very good symbiotic collaboration and it was just a joy. Awesome. Well, no, thank you for sending it over. I'm excited to read it. And uh, as you mentioned, streetwise to saleswise, you know, is about becoming objection proof and, and beating the sales blues. And uh, I guess diving into things, why do you say objections really no longer are something to fear? Well, you know, one thing that every salesperson, especially newer salespeople, but even the veteran, they all have to deal with 
the fact that clients aren't going to automatically or prospects aren't going to automatically run up, grab you by the collar and say, please, please sell me something. I want to buy from you now. Uh, sometimes you have to go through a process. And, you know, basically when you get down to it, objection proof is both a philosophy and a methodology where sales professionals are able to effectively work with the objection aspect in a sales process, both leading up to it and during the actual sales conversation itself. And the, there are ways that you can do it. And you, if you do it properly, not only do you help them find a solution to an objection that they probably, I'm assuming if you're selling something like I know you are in your industry, yeah. uh, something that means so much to the end user. When your clients need you, they are so happy that you're there. That being said, you still need to be able to work through a process in many cases to establish the need. And what happens if you do this process that we teach in the book? Well, you're going to eliminate many of the objections up front before you even they even get verbalized to you. And then once you do get a, an objection verbalized, you're going to do it in such a way that not only do you help them find a solution, but you build a relationship. And uh, there's another concept we teach in the book called Fusion Points, which is one of my leadership uh, programs. And in Fusion Points, what you're doing is you're building that relationship and kind of some unique ways that, that play with the neurology of the brain, not in a bad way. I'm not saying we're out there doing evil scientist stuff. But <laughs> right. you're, you're making people comfortable taking the next steps, what it amounts to. And that at, at its heart, that's what the process does. It, it, it helps find the solution and neutralize the issue, but it also builds a relationship that lasts for a very long time. I love it. And in addition to, I guess, fusion points, one of the things that you mentioned and uh, and wrote was had to do with framing. So I guess, what do you mean by framing and why is that so important? That's a great question. You know, uh, frame in and of itself, a frame basically is how we see the world. I, I like to use an analogy of looking out a window. You know, if, you, you, if you're looking out a window, you've got the, the window frame there, the, the sill, and you're seeing the world from that perspective. And at, at, at when you're doing that, sometimes if you shift that frame slightly, even the perspective becomes completely different. And one of the things that we teach in the book is how to reframe things that aren't going well and how to reframe them. Not so much you say, oh, well, it really is going well. Look at it this way. That's not what I'm talking about. Sometimes it's as simple as reframing how you see something. Hmm. Uh, there's a process that we teach in there uh, about how to turn a gatekeeper, uh, your initial contact in any sales process, how to turn that gatekeeper into something we refer to as a key holder. And in the storyline, Thaddeus, uh, the protagonist, is he's he's uh, he's gone to training school. He's he's excited and he's going out there and he gets his rear end. Uh, it doesn't go as well as he had hoped. Is the best way to say it. <laughs> And so he uh, he's he's not getting past gatekeepers and he's struggling, and his mentor Andre uh, kind of helps him reframe that and he and there's a he he basically does the same process in leadership with helping Thaddeus see it differently that you would if you were doing handling uh, or you were uh, working through an objection on the objection proof process, but he takes him through a. a a mental picture where he says, well, let's think about this issue. And I'll go ahead and just do a little bit of this now. They'll give a little extra training for your folks if they don't get an opportunity to get the book. At least they'll get some of this. Yeah. But 
he he would say, you know, Thaddeus, I want you to think about uh, this from a little bit different perspective. You know, first off, I understand what you're saying. I can see how that would be frustrating to you. You're you're making calls. You're excited, but now you you know it, when you get those no's or you don't get past the gatekeeper, it makes you a little bit uncomfortable. makes makes you wonder if you got what it takes. He says, but let me reframe this for you. He said, that gatekeeper, you know, you think about what their job is. Their job is basically to protect the time of whoever the owner is or what whoever the decision maker is in the sales process. And it's not that they don't like you and don't want you in the door. It's they know that if they let every person come through, then the boss can't get their job done. And, you know, we can't really get mad at anybody for do it, just doing their job now, can we? Well, no, we can't. He said, but think about this a little differently. If you can focus on how the the administrative assistant that's handling your call right now or your or your face-to-face contact, if you can focus your phrases on how they benefit, you're likely going to change your outcome. And uh, in, in the storyline, yeah, one thing that you're going to love and your people are going to love, uh, Dylan, is it's set in the insurance industry. The, the processes work in every industry, but Thaddeus is in the insurance industry. And he's in employee benefits and he's making those calls. And uh, Andre teaches him something, and this is quite frankly a, 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 the storyline that I learned years ago after reading Endless Referrals from Bob Berg. But uh, he said, how does that person benefit? How does that gatekeeper benefit if they're helping you? And he said, well, if they, they get sick or they get hurt, we, they're going to be getting money from our company, and it's going to be uh, uh, it's going to definitely be helpful to them. He said, that's right. And he said, but do you, your phrases to that person ever focus on that? And Thaddeus says, no, I'll basically just tell them who we are and what we do. He said, well, let's reframe that, Thaddeus. Let's start talking about what it means to the person that you're talking with. And as he starts to do it, you, in the the, the storyline, it, it it starts to work. It doesn't work every time, but it works. And he starts getting a handle on it. it but, but basically what it did for Thaddeus is it took him from being focused on what he did, what he sold, uh, what the company was. It took him away from that focus and had him completely change to where he looked at how can I help the person I'm talking to at the time benefit? What is their value from this interaction? What's their value from my proposition? And so in real life and in the storyline, I began to go out and and when I would be talking to a gatekeeper, whether it was in person or on the phone, I would be mentioning, you know, if this works out for your company, this is going to be something that we could be paying you money if you're missing work because you're hurt or you're sick and maybe a seriously ill spouse or child too. I said, oh, you probably wouldn't need that. And every one of them said, oh, yes, I would do. And so then they would start helping me get into the to the decision maker. Yeah. No, it's, yeah. I mean, we talk about all the time how your reality is simply the way that you perceive information. So yeah, reframing things is, is essential to continue to, to move forward, especially in a career that is ridden with all different kinds of objections that you learn to get better at covering as time right. goes on. Right. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the basic premise of your book, uh, Streetwise to Saleswise, is covering objections, overcoming obje- objections. Um, but rather than overcoming objections, um, you say that you really shouldn't, you shouldn't try to overcome objections, right? But if that is not what you're trying to do, how and what do you do to advance the sale? Sure. Isn't that the funniest thing when you think about it? It goes in the face of every sales training book that I ever read in my early career about overcoming objections. You want to overcome the objection. You want to have this answer, that answer. Well, the truth is uh, none of us like being overcome by anyone. 
We, we don't mind being overcome with something like joy or happiness. But when it comes to being overcome by someone, uh, you don't have to look much further than a political spectrum to know that people <laughs> don't like that. They, they don't want you to tell them why what they think is wrong. And they don't want to, if you do that in the wrong way, it becomes confrontational. And instead of becoming your ally, they stay your adversary. It's not going to work. Yeah. And it's, uh, if you're, you know, it becomes almost like a ping pong match. Well, he said this and I said that, and he said this and I said that. And when you get through, nobody won. Yeah. But if you approach it differently, if you reframe <laughs> how you see an objection and how you see an objection process, then it makes it easier. And the process that we, we teach, and this is simplifying it, but basically the first step is control your own emotions. Part of the reason salespeople respond poorly when they hear an objection is because they, they're the way their brain works, the neurology of the brain, they, they, they have a fear of loss and the neurology of the brain sends a little signal to their chest and their stomach and they start feeling uneasy. They don't like that feeling and they want to avoid it. And so they react poorly. But, but if you, <laughs> exactly, you know, but if you, if you control your own emotions first, that's the first step. Then the next step is to empathize, realize that, you know, what, whatever this issue may be, it's real to the person you're visiting with. And your goal isn't to convince them to do something against their will. Your goal is to, if you, if you really do, if you're selling something that the end user really does need, which if you're not, you need to go sell something else. And that's just my throw out to the world. That's what happens when you let an old man do these things. But you need to sell something you believe makes a difference. But uh, you you empathize with them. You, you say, you know, and you stop short of agreeing. You know, so I can understand how that would be a valid concern. And then ask permission to get more information. And, you know, say, do you mind if I ask you, could you go into that a little bit more? Let me understand what it really is. Because many times the first thing that's out of their mouth might not be the actual objection. It might be a kind of a surface level symptom. And it could be that there's another objection they haven't voiced, but oftentimes they're just uneasy with it. It's the first thing they can think of to stall you. But if you say, you know, if you, do you mind sharing a little bit more information about that? You know, for example, if someone's selling a house and uh, they think they're about to close and they get to the day where they're kind of doing the final walkthroughs. And then one of the people says, you know, I'm, just, I'm afraid this is too far away from town for us. I don't know if I want to do this. You might say, well, you know, I certainly understand that. I really do. It, it, it's a valid consideration. And, that, you know, I, I certainly can't blame you for thinking about that. Do you mind if I ask you some questions to understand your perspective better? You know, what do you mean? What is it that you would miss by being a little further from town? Well, it might be the amenities, the doctors, the hospitals, the movie theaters, restaurants, could be anything. And you say, well, you know, I, I can certainly understand that. I appreciate what you're saying. Would it help you to know that there are now that there are plans to build all of those things right around where you are here, something of that nature? And then you go into whatever the actual solution to the issue is. Yeah. And you'll find when you do that, when you start off controlling your emotions, you empathize, then you ask questions to make sure you really understand. Then it gives you the ability to then offer your solution, uh, gain agreement that there's nothing else going on, make sure it's the only up, uh, the only objection that they have. And then it yeah. gives you the ability to provide that solution, throw a little social proof in on top of it, which is a great thing you can do in your industry. Uh, and it, just, just a little uh, reference letter from a happy client who said, yeah, we've been doing business with you for decades and we love you. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that goes a long way. Well, man, it's so true. I mean, whether it's a 
new sales professional or a veteran sales professional, the tendency, if we're not cautious and intentional, is to definitely fence with the prospect, uh, which is the opposite of what we're looking to do. And the uh, acronym that we use to describe what you were just explaining was uh, is CLASP, right? So we ask more more questions about their current situation, you know, eventually get to what they like about their current situation. If there's anything they would change, what would they alter? Um, right. You know, figure out if you're talking to the actual decision maker or not, and then uh, painting a picture for what the solution could be. Um, Absolutely. So I love it. Yeah, everything that you're saying is 100% aligning uh, with the stuff that that we promote. And it's just, it's gold. And I love hearing it packaged in a different way. Um, I think it's, yeah, super, super helpful for people. Um, now, in, in that kind of same vein, I, I know that the way that you think of value propositions is different than most. I guess, why would you say that your view on that varies so much? Well, the uh, I did a series of articles uh, a few years back for Susan Solovic, who uh, her branding is that she's the small business expert, and she was on Fox Business all the time as a guest and all this. And uh, she and I got to know each other, and I did a series of articles for her because her market was basically that uh, that entrepreneur that had uh, started selling, uh, started their business, and then were trying to balance the hat between sales and and marketing their and and running their firm. Yeah. And uh, the thing that I coached in that article series, and it's been my coaching about this whole process for a long time, is most companies miss the mark when you hear them talk about their value proposition. Uh, well, there's a lot of companies you'll hear them talk about the value proposition being, well, you know, they're doing business with us, and then we're throwing this in on top of it, and this in on top of it, and we we offer this service and that service, and minimal charge or no charge, and and those are all good things. Please don't get me wrong. Yeah. But they have absolutely nothing to do with the value proposition. <laughs> the value proposition really isn't about how great our product is or our service is. It's not about how great our company is. It's not even how great we are. And we know every listener you have is absolutely awesome. They're great people. That's not the issue. But the value proposition has nothing to do with us. It's 100% focused on how the person that we're visiting with at the time how their world changes, how their life gets better, either personally or professionally, when they choose to do business with us and with our company. And so in essence, it's not our value proposition. It's their value from our proposition that matters. And so when you get that, and that's really, again, goes back to one of the things that Bob never talked about it in that way, but that's exactly what I learned from Bob in Endless Referrals. But when you get that and you understand uh the whole equation here works because it's kind of like sales at its core sales at its very best is when someone is focused on the value that they can provide to a potential client and they have a company that can provide that solution. And the salesperson stands in the middle, like a matchmaker putting hands together saying, okay, I'm going to connect this person with this need with this company that, that will do this. I connect, make that connection, and then they pay me for what I did. Right, and that's it's exactly why it's their value from our proposition. Yeah, finding the need and then providing the service. Absolutely, and uh, yeah, and I the again part of I I could say the whole thing in <laughs> as it pertains to your book uh, goes into um, how to come up with or how to 
respond or handle or deal with these objections that are naturally going to come up throughout the sales process, whether that's a procrastination objection, it's, I need to talk to my spouse, I need to think about it or, you know, whatever we're, you know, we're happy with who we have currently. Um, but I guess, how do you effectively work through those very common objections uh, that tend to give a lot of people nightmares? The, the best way to do that, in my opinion, uh, Dylan, is to learn how to handle those common objections in your actual sales conversation. Now, I tend to avoid the term sales presentation because to me, there is a part that's a presentation. When you're making your recommendations to say, okay, I think you need this and this and this, that's a presentation. But before that, it's a conversation. And yeah. uh, I, I tend to stay away from that verbiage because of that. But that being said, I love there that. are I thought certain. I thought we were the first people to teach that. That's a <laughs> sales conversation. So yeah, so good. Sorry, Sorry to interrupt. That was just a, we, that we, was we're fun. we're kindred spirits, aren't we? Yeah, amen. <laughs> but um, there are certain objections that we all know we're going to get. You can be in your market for five minutes, five hours, or five months, and you're going to kind of get a list of a few objections that seem to be very common once you get through. And if, if you, with those objections, if you learn how to address them in your actual sales conversation, what you'll find is the dynamic changes. You know, if you address it in your sales conversation along with a solution, it's not an objection. It's education. Well, yeah. a lot of, you know, it's a lot of people, you, you might be thinking about this, but here's what that, here's what that solution is. It's, it's basically educating them on that before it even comes out. And when you do that, you find so many of your objections never get voiced anyway. They're, they you make them more comfortable going forward. And uh, if, if they have express that concern after you finish the conversation, then it's an objection. And then you need to be ready to use something to work through the objection proof process. But if you can get it expressed before that, it's not an objection, it's education. And we'll all take education over objection every chance we get. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. Back when I was in the uh, working full-time in the insurance industry and in the employee benefit programs, there was a common factor that I began to see very early on. And it was, I could be in a group of men and they would say, yeah, this makes perfect sense to me. I like this. And then I, I would do, we, what I did at that time was I would do group information meetings and I would do one-on-one follow-ups. That's just, it was a better use of my time. I know different companies have different ways they do that. But when I would get to the follow-up meeting, that husband, he, he would no longer thought it was a good idea because he'd gotten home and he couldn't explain it to his spouse. And so what I started doing, uh, there was a little sheet that, that put in there that would talk about, okay, even if you've got health insurance already, these are reasons that you still probably should have something in addition to that. And I and I when I would finish my meeting, I would say, now pull out that brochure. And I'd I'd make them all pull it out in the meeting and I'd play with them and I'd say, now, gentlemen, the the women in this room can make decisions, but I realize you can't. So here's what I've done for you. And I would, of course, with my sense of humor, I'll I'll I usually didn't get myself in, into hot water with it, but you have to kind of be careful with a sense of humor in this. Yeah. But I said, I said, uh, pull that sheet out. And it, I said, when you get home tonight and you're trying to explain to your spouse why you thought this was such a good idea, they are not. They weren't in here to hear everything you just heard. But this sheet will help you explain some of the things I just said to you. So I'm calling this your spouse sheet. So when that happens, you just pull that and say, well, honey, look right here. This is what this is. <laughs> My closing ratio was already pretty decent, but it jumped. <laughs> but I knew I was going to get that objection. So I handled it as education. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, whoever gets to the objection first wins. The best time to cover an objection is before it comes up. Yes, um, sir. Yeah. So good. Well, as I was reading through uh, your intro, um, one of the things that I saw that you say is that it's not the the nose that caused potential star salespeople to quit. Um, but if it's not the nose, then what would you say that it is? I think in most cases, especially when someone's in their first year, yeah. the, the, uh, the, the nose that they get, they, they take it very personal. And they almost start to believe that they're the only ones getting them because they'll see the, the award winners go across the stage. You know, they won president's club. They won this award. They won that award. And they're back there going, I can't even get anybody to say yes to an appointment. But once they understand that uh, getting a no isn't the end of the world and, and the people that are going across the stage, not only do, have they gotten their nose, they probably got more nose than most of the people in that banquet hall at the time. And so just helping them reframe what a no is, we do that in a pretty interesting way in the book. But uh, I had learned a concept, and I I kind of teach this in in its own way and streetwise to saleswise. But I had learned a concept uh, in my first sales book that I ever read. And it was by, uh, it was a book called How I Raised Myself from Failure to Success in Selling by Frank Betcher. You're shaking your head. I can tell you know what it is. And it was a great book. Now it's old. I think the numbers were in the fifties or sixties. So the the day's numbers, it wouldn't be the same. But one of the things I learned in that book was not to focus on whether I got a yes or a no, to focus on a block of activity and then kind of average my income out based on the block of activity rather than any single call. Mm -hmm. And when I was in the industrial uniform industry in Georgia, uh, Atlanta, Georgia was kind of a tough market and the industrial uniform industry is a very blue collar sale. And sometimes things go great. And sometimes, sometimes things don't go so great. <laughs> I was making a call and it was Monday morning and I walked into the front door, the administrative assistant is sitting at the reception desk behind her is the owner. I didn't know it was the owner, but I saw some owners back there. Yeah. And I walked in, and I literally only got my name out and the name of our uniform company out and that man went off talking about how, how all the uniform companies were owned by the mafia and we were all terrible. And he didn't know me, but I couldn't be any better than the others. And he just kept going off. When he finally finished, I, I was grinning a little bit and I nodded my head and I said, well, look, I want to thank you for the $23 because I had done my, my math. And in my head, I knew my average sales call was going to be worth $23 to me. Whether they said yes, it didn't matter. Whether they said no, it didn't matter. Because if I would make X number of calls, I'd make X number of commission. If I divided that out, it was $23 a call. And so I said, well, thank you for the $23. And I turned to walk out the door. And he said, what? What do you mean, thank you for the $23? And I I, I have a music background, as you and I discussed. And I did. I, I was in marching band. So I did a little pivot, a little about face, almost like a marching band thing. <laughs> and I, I explained the concept to him. And he said, well, he got a smile on his face. And he lightened up and he said, I need to have you come talk to my salespeople. And I said, for a fee. <laughs> I didn't know I was predicting my own future. <laughs> oh, the timing on things is wild. One of the more recent episodes that we uh, released a, a couple of weeks ago was called Gamify the Nose. And we did exactly that, right? Showed people how to break down exactly what what each one of their nose is right. worth. Um, so it's, it's awesome to hear that you did that back, what, 20... 20, 30 years ago when you started that, getting that was that was a, a bit ago, a few decades ago now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's it's awesome. And it's it's helpful to to reframe 
uh, the way that you think about something that can be perceived as negative. Um, yeah. you, know, now, you probably read the book, uh, go for no by Andrea. Oh, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the, yes. Yeah. Uh, she also, we had her on the, on the podcast, uh, a little bit before we had Bob on. She's such great. an awesome, awesome book, awesome person. And, uh, she gave us a great endorsement for streetwise. It was, she's a really nice lady. So. Yeah, no, she's incredible. Um, extremely humble, uh, for all the success that she's seen as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed my conversation with her. Now you just mentioned all the stuff that's coming in. Uh, tell us about the out or the, the back door. Uh, I think when you are, when you're in sales, one of the most comfortable things in the world for you is one of the most uncomfortable things for your prospect. You know, it's, it's pretty easy to just basically, uh, not every salesperson is this way, but a lot of salespeople are uh, pretty confident. They know the right thing to do next. And they're, they're, they're willing to tell people, okay, this, this is that. But if you always in your verbiage, uh, give someone a back door, give them a way out. Yeah. You, what happens is you build a relationship, you make them more comfortable. And oddly enough, when you give them an out, if you do a great job at it, they're less likely to take it. You know, it's like when, um, in, in prospecting or in interview, when I was recruiting uh, insurance agents, that, that process as well. It, it, it's there was a phrase that I always like to use with everybody, and I did it with employers. I do it when I'm booking speaking events now, and I said, "I'm not sure this is going to be the right opportunity for you, because I don't know enough about your company. You don't know enough about what I do, but I can promise you this: you and I are the two best people to make that determination." So why don't we spend a gamble about 20 minutes on each other to make sure. And it's just, it's just a, what you give them that way out. And they're so much more comfortable that you're not going to push them into something. So they're, they're more comfortable moving forward. Sure. Yeah. We call that a buying atmosphere. We live in America, people love to buy, but they hate to be sold. So yeah, hundred percent giving people a way out, helping them understand that it's okay to say no, right? We're not here to twist your arm and make a no, a yes. Right. We're just here to, to find the yeses. So you know, yeah, thank you. Know, you Dylan, for- I- I have to compliment you. I know, I know you're a, uh, you're a younger man than me, but you really have your head on right. So I, I have to compliment you about that. So. I appreciate that, Jeff. Appreciate it a lot. Um, now, I, one of the things that you mentioned in regard to being objection proof was empathy. You mind talking a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, you know, they, they're, uh, I have a, a friend who's a counselor. Uh, matter of fact, it's, um, John David Mann, who's the co-author on the Go-Giver series, it's his wife, Anna. Mm. And she says, you know, one of the, the, the primary needs we have as human beings is our, it, it's, it's called primary narcissism, but that, I don't like the way that sounds, but it's basically <laughs> our need to be noticed. Yeah. We, we want someone to witness that we're there. We want, that's why we, we get into relationships and we spend lives with one other person, if that's what we choose to do. It's because we want to be witnessed. We want someone to know we're there to go through it with us. And in, um, in the world in general, the empathy level is key to making that happen. Uh, you know, I, I, I tend to equate too many things to what I see going on in society. And I think society is l- seriously lacking in empathy for anyone that's, that may be diff- that's different from them or thinks slightly different than them. Yeah. But empathy is that ability to feel as best you can what another person is experiencing. Now, for some of us, it's very natural. I, I have a very high empathy level. As a matter of fact, my first outside sales job, the 
general manager for that company almost didn't give me the position because he said I didn't have the right experience. But when they gave me their standardized test, my empathy level was off the chart. I I can feel it too much at times. I can, I, you know, if somebody's telling me a sob story, I'm liable to sob with them. That's just who I am. But uh, you, you don't have to quite go that far. But empathy, it's the ability to feel what's happening on the other end of the equation. And even if you don't really understand exactly what they're feeling, you at least know they're feeling something and it's important. And then you acknowledge that that feeling that they're having is okay. It's, a, it's, an, it's, it's theirs. They get to have that. And then if you've, if you've done that and they don't see you trying to push them forward, what happens is they get a comfortableness with you. Uh, I say it builds a fusion point with you. And uh, they get a little bit of loyalty toward you. They get a little more comfortable with you and they're willing to go forward. And then, like in the objection-proof process, if they feel that and you ask the questions to make sure you understand that, they'll give you the opportunity to help them find a solution in many cases. And even if you're not the solution right now, uh, you'll be, I, I used to say top of mind when that time comes, but a, a friend of mine wrote a book, a guy named Grant Bueller. He's in the, uh, in, he's in the real estate industry. And he wrote a book called Top of Heart. So okay. instead of being top of mind, you want to be top of heart. You want to be the first person, not only that they think about, but that they like you so much that they don't want to go anywhere else. Uh, when as my career in the insurance industry kept advancing and all that, I literally had people that were my personal contacts and employer groups that as I got promotions and I wasn't going to be able to be their person anymore, I had some of them literally get teary-eyed about it because they didn't want me to go. So I would go back and take them to lunch every now and then just for the cause. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Well, I, so many people, you know, think about the the concept of building rapport as, you know, goofy conversationalism before they actually jump into their sales conversation. Um, but man, it's, I, th I think there, there is a little bit of that that needs to happen before we just jump straight into business. But from the way that I've always seen it, I mean, at least for a long time, I've seen it in sales is that the majority of the rapport is built in the times in the situations like you just explained where right. you're in the sales conversation and you're listening to them about their personal experiences and they can tell that you care um, or you're, you know, using something that they said earlier and you're showing them that you listened so that you're, so you can communicate that you're paying attention and they're just, they're not just a number, but you're, you know, they're someone that you are going to take care of if, and when something happens, if you get them protected on the, you know, the policy that you're selling. Right. Um, so yeah, that's so good. Well, you know, uh, I think that you had a good point there that the, the amount of time that you spend on the rapport section at the very beginning of a, a sales conversation, it's going to vary. And, and each person has to be aware of who the the person on the other side of the desk is. You know, if you yeah. if that's a person on the other side of the desk, that uh, they're more of a, you need to get right to this right now, or I'm going to yeah. throw you out, then you got to right. handle it a little differently. And even yeah. then you still have to ask questions. But uh, yeah. the, uh, one of my favorite questions in that first initial rapport setting uh, I, I get, I, we've all had that same sales training, family, occupation, recreation, message, you know, ask questions in that area, get them talking about themselves and it's all very valid. But one of my favorite questions, especially when you're in that scenario where the person uh, that you're visiting with, you perceive they want to get right to business pretty quickly. Uh, one of my favorite questions was, you know, I always do research on the company before I walk in your door. I don't want to walk in blindly. 
And I know I'll, I've gained a lot of information that way, but I'd like to ask you a question if you don't mind taking just a minute to tell me. Uh, I know what I know, but tell me behind the scenes, what is your favorite thing to brag about, about your company and your people that I couldn't have gotten in my research? Mm. And then all of a sudden you see even the hard, hard cases relax. And you see them start telling stories about, you know, we do this really well, and I've got some of the greatest people, blah, blah, blah. And especially in the employee benefit arena, I wanted them talking about how great their people were. I wanted them talking about how they wanted to take good care of those folks. Right. Because I, I knew that that was the same kind of person that would want to do business with me. Yeah. No, that's a, that is a great question. Um, now, you mentioned um, in the, the message that I, I read online that there are five steps to working with objections like a pro? Well, uh, kind of a little bit of a synopsis of it works with objections, also works pretty much anytime you're in a relationship and the person that you're visiting with isn't necessarily on board with what you're trying to get done, whether it's business or personal or whatever. Uh, it, it always goes back to the same steps. Number one, keep your emotions under control. If you start getting tense, they're going to feed off of that and they're going to, it's not going to go well. They're going to respond to your emotions. Uh, you're going to empathize with their concern and to ask questions to make sure that you understand that concern exactly. You know, yeah. let them know, hey, that's a valid consideration. But let me ask if I may dig into that a little deeper. Tell me exactly what that means to you when you say that. And they'll get in there. Uh, isolate the issue. Uh, you want to know if it's the only objection. You know, other than this, is there any other issue that you can see that would keep us from moving forward? Uh, and if there are, that's going to come out and then provide solutions. And always give the social proof. Those are the, the steps. But uh, there's something, because, you're, because your followers are in an industry that I know really well, I'm going to teach you something here I don't normally go into in interviews. You want this? Go for it. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the book, but I'll, I'll give it with you. I used to always, in the employee benefit arena, find myself having to start at a lower level uh, person in the decision process. Maybe it was someone like an HR director or HR manager who had to gather the information, but the decision wasn't going to be made by that person. It was going up either to a committee or yeah. to a uh, an upper level person. And I, I would find myself in that situation. There's a great way, and I've and I taught this for decades now, even back when I was still actively in the, working in the industry. You want to close the decision influencer. The person that in this case is not the decision maker, but they will have influence. And if you treat them with anything less than the exact same respect you would treat the final decision maker, uh, you'll find very quickly they may not be able to say yes, but they can darn sure say no. Yeah. So they're, they're, you're dead in your tracks. But when you've you finished your sales conversation with that decision influencer, when you have to do that, uh, and the first thing I would always do, by the way, in this scenario, is I would always ask if, if there was anyone else who would be involved in the final decision, and, and could we get them in on the same meeting if that's the case? Sometimes they could, sometimes they couldn't. But when I finished it, I, I would say, now, uh, to the decision influencer, I would, I would start off, I would take them off the hook, I would give them a promotion, and then I would close the sale. And then I would do it as I said, you know, Dylan, look, I understand from what you said, this is the step that we're at right now in your company is you're gathering the information and you've got to go up the line with it. And, and I appreciate that. And I, I thank you so much for giving me your time today. Uh, so I don't, you know, that that's perfectly okay. But I want to ask you a question. First off, I'd like to give you a promotion. You're now the owner of the business. 
whatever you say goes. And then I always laugh and I have to say, and by the way, don't, don't get too excited though, because an imaginary promotion only comes with an imaginary pay raise. So, <laughs> but, and then that would get them laughing a little bit. But I do want to ask you a serious question. If the final decision was yours and yours alone, do you see any reason we wouldn't be moving forward? And then if that decision influencer has got an objection, they haven't really told you about that's okay. going to get out on the table. Yeah. And then if they, they say, no, I don't know. We'd be going forward. Then go to work for them. Say, well, that's great. Here's what I would like to do. I'm going to, I want to go to work for you. And rather than you having to learn everything I just showed you in here and memorize this or that, why don't we do this? Let's get a meeting on the calendar that I'll go with you to the higher ups, to the committee, whatever we need to do. I'll have the conversation. I'll lay things out for them so that they understand it. And then if you want me to, I'll leave and you all can, can discuss your decision. Is that fair enough? And they'd say, absolutely, thank you for doing that. And so what I did by doing that, that decision influencer wasn't going to make the decision anyway, but I took them off the hook. I made them like me, and then I gave them a solution, but I found out if there were any more objections that way as well. And so yeah. did the whole process, it, it was one of the most valuable things. I closed a, about a 500-employee group with that exact same verbiage. Love that. Well, thank you for sharing. We'll have to we'll have to try that out, and I'll let you know how it goes. But we will Sounds we'll definitely good. be stealing that. So <laughs> you're welcome to everything. So cool. Well, uh, I guess as we as we come to a close, Jeff, is there anything else that you think would provide value to our listeners that would be worth sharing while we're here? Does it have to be business? It doesn't have to be. I'm going to tell you the most valuable lesson I ever learned, and I did learn it from a sales manager. Love it. I. My uh, my bachelor's degree is in music education. I got that degree in the state of Alabama. I came out to Texas to get a master's degree in music composition. I've done film scoring and some things of that nature, small level stuff. Yeah. But uh, when I decided I was going to, to take the sales job, or when I was offered the sales job back where my wife needed to finish up her degree, uh, the sales manager was a guy named Jack Amberson. Still one of my life heroes today. And he said, why don't you come spend a week with me during your spring break, ride with me, do the job. It was for a musical instrument company in sales. Ride with me, do the job. You'll, you'll, you'll get, uh, you'll know by the time that week's out if it's something you want to do or not. And he said, and you can stay at my house. So for a week, I lived with his family, uh, ate, ate meals at his table with his wife and his children. Uh, it was just great. But every morning, Dylan, uh, his kids, uh, Becky and Ted, they would come jump up into his lap. And Ted was, I think, in the first grade, and Becky was younger than that. They'd come jump up in his lap, and he gave his kids a hug and a kiss, and he said, I love you so much. I am so glad God picked me to be your daddy. And Dylan, I'll tell you, that week changed my life because I, I know my parents loved me, but they were not demonstrative of that. Yeah. Uh, I probably made up a new word there, demonstrative. Anyway, but they, they okay. didn't demonstrate that love. They didn't say that so much. And I've watched Jack, a man's man by every possible definition, and how he loved his children. And it didn't just change my life because instead of raising my children like I'd been raised, that both my daughters grew up every day knowing that that uh, their dad's love for them couldn't be interrupted, couldn't be broken. They were That was the safest place in the world for them. And now... I've watched their children because my children have their own children now. And I've watched them do the same thing with them. And it's, I learned it from a sales manager. He's also the guy who gave me that Frank Betcher book, by the way. 
but uh, the lesson I learned went way deeper than what I've ever done in a career. And uh, actually, in in the my first book, The Unexpected Tour Guide, uh, I used Jack Amberson. I was going to write him as one of the characters into the story anyway, about the real the way he really was. I wasn't planning originally to use his name, but I called him and I said, do you mind if I use your name on that? He said, I'd be honored if you would. And so in the first book, Jack Amberson is a real character in the book. And I wrote him the way the real guy really is in real life. The, the story was fictional, but uh, the character traits were the same. And I got to, I got an email from someone, or maybe it was a LinkedIn, it was someone from Australia who reached out to me on LinkedIn uh, a few months back. And, uh, she had read the unexpected tour guide and she was making some very complimentary statements. So, and so she and I even got on a zoom call together and, uh, I watched the next day I was watching her post something. I think it was on Facebook about her parents and how glad she was. God picked them to be her parents. And, and it was just so much of the same verbiage. I sent Jack a text message. I said, look here. I said, I worked for you for like what, two, three years back in the, the early eighties. And, Look, it's it's not just me. You're affecting people in Australia now. <laughs> <laughs> He's an awesome guy, but that's the most important thing I've ever learned, and it's it's my favorite thing to share. So, well, that's uh, yeah, that's extremely memorable. Thank you, thank you for sharing that. I one of my questions. I used to sell stuff door to door, eighty hours a week, and you know, straight commission in the middle of nowhere. And right. uh, one one year, I was in the middle of Pennsylvania talking to primarily that summer was Amish families. And uh, my question, and I would wrap up with them would be like, if there was one, if there was one piece of parenting advice, uh, what would you give? And I, I forget most of them, most of them were like, you know, you know, make sure that there's good communication and all that kind of stuff. But the, this one definitely stood out more than others. And in the same way that I feel like that is going to stick with me. And he said, show your kids that you love your wife and, uh, reminding your kids that, uh, you know, that you're so glad that God picked you to be your daddy or, you know, whatever the situation might be. Um, I, I think that'll stick with me in the, in a very similar way to, to the way that that did. So yeah, thank you for being willing to share that. Um, well, Jeff, um, we are, yeah, we're coming up on time, but from streetwise to sales wise, uh, we'll make sure the link to that is in the show notes. Do you, uh, is there a date that this is coming out? Is it already out? It is out now. As a matter of fact, we are flooding Amazon. I got tickled. The easiest oh. way to get the book is go to streetwise to saleswise.com. But the, uh, I got tickled. Uh, the, the, it's on Audible, it's on Kindle, it's on hardback. Uh, Amazon was having a hard time keeping up with hardback. Barnes and Noble's kicking rear end with it. They were doing great. But uh, so I, we also uh, had them release the paperback version. So that Amazon could keep up with demand because Amazon can do paperbacks in two days, but hardbacks are taking them four weeks. So, but, so I go to streetwise to saleswise.com. By the way, if you, with every book, uh, Dylan, that goes out, uh, they're inside the book, both audio book and in the real book. There's behind the scenes access where everybody that gets a book is going to get a three video series if they want it. That's Bob and I teaching how to master the art of becoming objection proof. And it's mm-hmm. three videos are all about 20 minutes each. If we were charging for that, it'd be way more than the cost of the book, but we're giving that away because we really want this to make a difference in people. Well, I am so excited to dive in and read it. Um, thank you so much, Jeff, for taking the time today. Appreciate you a lot. I'm honored, my friend. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. This has been an Elevated Podcast production. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to check out our Instagram page at Elevated Financial 
like, share, and let us know what you want to hear more of.